Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Al Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. Today... I'm welcoming back two of my favorite people in music and metal. We have done a podcast like this before. I think it was in 2018. But I've got Dave Otero, the producer, mixer, mastering engineer, as well as Dean Lamb, guitar player, songwriter for the band Arkspire. I love them both. Let's do this. Dave Otero and Dean Lamb, welcome back to the URM podcast. Thank you. I mean, I got to say this is, and, I, and I've said this a lot, and I keep saying this, this is the three most handsome men in podcasting. It's probably true. And like, I know there's some similarities, the head shape. I really think it is. And I've heard that a lot from other people as well. I can't say who, but a lot. Are you and I, are we in podcasting? Like we're on a podcast? I don't, I don't know that I would go <laughs> so far as to say we're in podcasting. I mean, you have a YouTube channel, which is like, whatever, a side thing. That's uh, true. So, it's a, yeah, I might have to push back just a touch. <laughs> uh, the three most handsome men on the internet. That's oh, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. I've also heard that. Captures everything. Yeah. It's about right. Yeah. All right, cool. Episode done. Title of the podcast, In the Bag. <laughs> what is it like being in a successful death metal band and also being that handsome? How do you reconcile the two? Oh my goodness. Reconciling the two is, it's quite easy. And uh, next question. How has your life changed since you <laughs> grew the mustache? <laughs> okay. My band Archspire was down with uh, Dave Otero at Flatline Audio and in, in, uh, just outside of Denver in 2020. And I grew a mustache and I kept it and I loved it. And I had it for about a year and a half and I was rocking a mustache and I was very proud of it. And I, uh, I just, for some reason, whatever, I just grew out a beard, whatever. And, uh, and one day my wife, she comes up to me and she says, yeah, it looks better this way. I, I was never a fan of the mustache. <laughs> and I said, what, you let me go for a year and a half. So I can't tell if that's her being kind and loving to me or I, like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what that is, but. Uh, or disengaged. <laughs> 
<laughs> like, She's this like, is from reality? Who are what? you? <laughs> no, from you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's so, it's so, it's weird. I loved the mustache and we are filming a new music video at, uh, in, in a couple weeks time. And I might bring the mustache back for that music video. I'm unsure. She may just have to deal with it. Yeah, you better start now or it's, you know, it won't be ah. nice and full and bushy. That's true. That's true. I liked the mustache for the record. I thought it looked good. I thought you pulled it off yeah. well. I tried. I certainly tried when you guys were down here. That was like a thing. Yeah. It was like an album thing. Yes. Yeah. Chelsea threatened to like leave immediately. I, I made it like four <laughs> days and she was like, this cannot happen. Well, which would you rather have? <laughs> the upfront honesty or like the, the delayed for the last year and a half you looked like shit? Like which one would you rather really have? Uh, you know, either is fine. I can work with either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty lucky that anybody yeah. wants to be with us anyway. Mm -hmm. I've had both. Yeah, you know, can make both work. As long as they think you're ugly, then you're good, <laughs> I guess. As long as they think that you're ugly. Yeah. Oh. It's always worked out for me better if, if they know they're better looking than me. Mm, three most handsome men, so. Give yeah. <laughs> think about that. Yeah. So what are you doing for this album or what album? What album am I even talking about? Oh, my goodness. This album? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm happy to say at this point we have one song written. It's going pretty slow. But as as Dave knows, and I'm sure Ale, you both you guys both know, it's a long, long process, especially when you're writing fast, extreme death metal. And it's just, it takes a while. So, Dave, at what point do you get involved? Because like, I know it's going to be different with different projects, but Arcspire or even this genre of music, like at what point do you think that your job begins? Uh, I'm... It takes a while and it, it is a little different, like you said, project to project. And it also changes like the more I've worked with a band just because that communication is already there. But honestly, like de definitely not right now. Like I wouldn't mind if he sent me a demo and I give him some like casual feedback. I wouldn't really start like digging in until essentially all the songs are written on, on the band's front. Like I, I typically like to only hear songs once or twice until it's like a few weeks before we're actually in the studio. And then at that point, I'll start drilling in a little bit harder. But I try and keep a lot of that because, you know, you have those ideas, those like initial reaction ideas, which I think are super important and kind of honestly like part of what a producer is supposed to do is provide that fresh perspective as opposed to musicians who have like sat with that music for years in some cases. So I like to retain as much of that as possible. For the bands here, I only want to listen to the song enough times to understand like the the song structure and kind of where everything goes and how it feels but before that then it, i keep i try and keep it real short and sweet so if dean were to send me like this one song now i would listen to it once or maybe twice and then maybe offer him like a one or two sentence feedback on just like my like, like delete it <laughs> delete it this song is trash <laughs> have toby write all the riffs next time um yeah yeah i purposefully keep things at like arm's length until the point where i'm actually able to like like get my hands dirty um and like manipulate songs and riffs in real time with a band the thing that's hard for us as musicians is when we write something and we get married to an idea, mm -hmm. even if it's not a good idea, it just sounds like it should be there after listening to it yeah. 20, 30, 40, 100 times, whatever. And I guess what you're saying is you're trying to not get married to the ideas, whether they be good or bad. Yeah. You just want to get the the first initial, holy shit, is this cool? And then, okay, what can we change 
or what, what do we need to change or what could change to make the song better rather than, okay, I listened to it a hundred times and, uh, you know, but when we change this one riff, it sounds kind of out of place. It's like, you, you don't want to be in that, in that space. Not at all. And I've actually like run into that situation where I'll get songs from a band and there may be sections or entire songs that honestly like feel a little flat to me. And then we'll work on them and we'll work on them. And sometimes those parts just like don't change. It depends on the band and like the time we have. Like, you know, you can't make every single song a banger for every single project. It's just not feasible. And then by the time we're done in the studio, I'm like, no, that's cool. I'm into it. And then uh, maybe we finish it and the album like kind of goes on my phone and then I don't listen to it for a few months. And then I listen to it back and I, I'm more inclined to feel the way I did when I first heard it, then after I was done with the project, if that makes well, sense. you're not used to it yeah. anymore. So like I, I'll hear a finished product and be like, oh shit, it still is like kind of flat. It still like doesn't quite have like the m magic cherry on top that I, I wanted to try and get. But in the process of working on it as well as, you know, 11 other songs, it just never really happened. And I thought it was fine when I was used to it. So it's like, I I've kind of think I trust that initial impression more. So that's why I try and like retain that. Because I feel really strongly about music immediately. Like when I hear a song one or two times, like I pretty much know any, a performance, a riff, mm -hmm. anything. I can tell right away like like what I feel about it. I'm, I'm very rarely indecisive. You should trust that. I really think you should. And if you don't trust that, you should find a way to develop your tastes to where you can trust it. I can tell you that with like Doth songs, there's stuff from 10 or more years ago that arguments about a part or a lyric or something that I like, I lost the battle. But there's two things that can happen when that happens is either the idea is better and you like it or you just let it go because the other person feels so strongly. Um, there have been a couple where, you know, I just ended up letting it go. Um, to this day, when I hear those parts, I feel the way I did then. Like they never grew on me. However, when those parts back then did make the song better and we did get rid of something, even something that I worked on for a long time that just got axed, which is a lot of stuff. I don't even remember those parts that got axed. I can listen to the original demos, hear them and be like, oh yeah, I thought that was cool at the time, but uh, now I see why we cut it. That was a good decision. Yeah. But man, the stuff that back then I didn't like, I still don't like. It doesn't change. I feel the same way. Like there's a few, you know, like a, a lot of things come down to like a democratic process in the studio at times. Mm -hmm. If people have disagreements, usually they're, they're like minor things where... If it's anything that's like super imperative, then you can't have like, you can't, it can't win on like a three to two vote, you know, but if it's a small thing, then sometimes that shit just happens. Like uh, just slightly, the majority is in favor of it and the rest of it's just like, okay, fine. I could still hear those and like those, like, I'm like, ah, yeah, I, I don't love that part. But I think an, another, Another thing that's kind of like the next step, so once you develop that musical sense, is learning to separate your personal tastes from your, like, producer-esque guidance, if that makes sense. Because there's some parts I, I'm like, okay, I don't like this, 
but it's me. It's just me. It's just me personally that doesn't like this. I think there are a lot of other people that would. And in that case, like it's a different conversation. Then, then you can't be like charging in to ax it if it's if you can identify it. It's just a, a personal taste of yours. There is a difference between like your personal musical taste and then like where your input should be as a producer. And that's a that's another one that's kind of difficult to discern at times, but it's all part of me. That's like a huge part of what a producer is supposed to do is just to like provide that guidance and sort of uh, be like the audience member in the room and speaking for the audience member, uh, essentially. But by the way, how much are we getting paid for this podcast? I was just thinking about that. I'll invoice you guys later. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I just wanted to clear that up I, uh, while we're on air. I just want to clear up how much we're getting paid just, <laughs> just to make sure that that's all out there. But I think that there's a role for having the audience in the room during the writing as well. And what's great is that we have a vocalist who, um, I'm still unsure if he graduated high school. I don't know. I can't tell. (laughs) (laughs) He may or may not have. I don't know. In in a lot of ways, Ollie, our vocalist acts like the audience. And in some ways also Spencer does, our drummer. They don't think about chord progressions in the same way that Toby, Jared, and I do. We'll come up with a riff and they'll say, wow, that sounds great. And in my head, I'm like, we're not even finished. There's so many, so many more things to it. But if that initial thing sounds great, then, oh man, we can add details. It's going to be a banger riff or whatever. Yeah. Or sometimes we'll come up with something and they'll be like, no, no, I don't like the sound of that for whatever reason. But in my head, I'm like, yeah, but it's a something, something cadence, but it's a resolving to the whatever bullshit that doesn't matter. Yeah. Because music theory should not be prescriptive. It should be descriptive. So whatever sounds good is the thing that sounds good. It's not like, yeah, 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 but I'm going to use music theory to make a riff. You can do that. And of course it's been done many times, but I think that writing something that's idiomatic to the instrument that feels good, that sounds good when you're playing it, and then you can use music theory to describe it. And if it sounds good to someone who maybe doesn't have all of their chord sounds memorized in their ear as much as our bass player Jared does who went to you know, jazz school, that doesn't matter. The audience is the person who's going to benefit from that. And it's an interesting thing to have five people that are very different in the room together writing and you get all their perspectives and you just have to kind of let go at some point and be like, you know what? You're coming at it from the audience perspective. You're probably right. This riff is probably too highfalutin, whatever. It doesn't matter that I'm doing hybrid picking into tap. Who cares? Yeah. What does the riff sound like? I've noticed like most of the more successful bands I've worked with have a good balance of that in the band. And not to say that Ollie and Spencer don't have like advanced musical stuff, but as far as their initial impression, it's like the feel of the music. It's like how a riff hits you. Yeah. And not so much focus on the like musical details like you were describing. And you need both. You definitely need both. If you just have a band full of like technical assholes, then like say it. the music yeah, can be really it. cool, <laughs> but then it doesn't, there's nothing that like affects you. You know, if you just come in and listen to it, it's just like, uh, it's just a bunch of sick riffs, like cool. But if you can't put them together in a way that's like impactful, uh, then the song again lands flat, you know? So yeah, both those guys are good at that. And sometimes as yeah. a producer, you know, you get a new band in and you're kind of learning everyone's role in the band. And okay, like, what do you contribute? Obviously you play your instrument, but then like, what is your part in the songwriting? What type of ideas do you bring to the table? That type of stuff comes a little bit later. Like the musical proficiency is like right up front. So I can tell, I can sit down and we can track some guitar with Dean and I can tell right away like, oh shit, okay, you know what you're talking about. You you have all this, all like the theory stuff down, but then like it can be weeks later and then all of a sudden 
someone will just talk about like I, don't, I just don't think this part of this riff has the the like magic factor and they're a lot of times they're right and you're like okay you, yeah you definitely do have you have you have your ear to the ground here it's just in a different way and both are super important i mean you can listen to popular music and i know that's not exactly the path that like in extreme metal we're trying to hit but it's popular for a reason so you listen to that stuff and if you dissect it down to those like individual musical elements like a lot of it's not that impressive like that's a crap riff lots of chord progressions been used like nine thousand times in the past five years yeah but it's going to have something it's going to have a unique something or a vibe or an identity that uh someone along the line like made happen you know they had a vision or they forced it until it was like okay now this feels like it has like a strong sense of identity and personality and that's potentially even more important yeah you know this whole concept of something falling flat it's really interesting to me i was thinking about that the other day because there's a lot of parts that on paper check all the boxes for what makes a cool riff or a cool part or like the right contrast to the part that went before it like it should work and for a crappy band it would be fine but for whatever reason, it like is boring or it doesn't take the song anywhere. Yeah. It just doesn't make you feel shit. And it's hard to quantify what it is that creates that or that creates the opposite of that, which is, uh, you know, that magic thing. But it's really, really important to recognize it, I think. And when something is falling flat, just kill it. Yeah. It's, it's the best, it's almost always, at least in the pre-production phase, it's almost always the best idea that if there's a riff that you're like, okay, what is it? Does it work? Eh. Either like control X, just get it out of there. You could keep it for later or whatever, or just fucking delete it. And you just like, the shackles are like released and you're like, oh, there's this new open area. We can do whatever we want in now. And, and the thing that was bothering us was not how to get into this riff or how to get out of it. It was the fucking riff in the middle. It wasn't working. And it's so awesome to just release yourself from that sometimes. Especially when it's almost working. It's like almost cool. It's almost good. Everything within it is good. Like good playing, good harmonies, good rhythms, like good everything. But it's just almost cool. And it's like a thorn in your side. I feel like you're right. The best thing in my experience is... Just let it go. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know if either of you guys are pack rats. You don't seem like it. Like people that keep a lot of shit? Yeah. Have you ever had like a part of your house or whatever that just accumulated stuff and then one day you just threw that shit away? That feeling of, uh, ah, that's what it feels like to me when you delete one of those sections of a song that's like almost cool but not cool. I live in, a, in a, an apartment in Vancouver, one of the most expensive cities in North America to live in. So I don't have any extra rooms. <laughs> I mean, you, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Pack rats get into everything. I read a thing like a few weeks ago that said, if you're struggling with having too much stuff, try this. Find an empty room in your house. Immediately, I was like, okay, 
like like who is this for? Like, oh, I, mean, I thought you were going to say try this, me. throw it away. <laughs> well, it was like take all the stuff that you don't know if you're whatever, put all the stuff in the room, and then over a month, if you don't go grab it, then it's trash or whatever. But like, sure, that works for some things. Like, I mean, me being a Juno Award uh, winning musician, there's a Juno Award, and of course that's the Canadian Gram- Grammy equivalent <laughs> for my band Ars Fire. The last album, Bleed the Future, won best hard uh, album oh, of the year last God. year. So, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I would never use that other than fo- uh, the occasional photo shoot. No, I would no, I would never. But anyway, uh, so, so there are things that are, you know, sentimental in some way. By the way, Dave, did you ever get your Juno? Yeah, yeah. I, it came a while ago and I, I took a bit to open it because it kind of came at a weird time. But I never sent you a video, but I actually wrapped it and I wrote from Archspire to Dave <laughs> and put it under the tree and I opened it on Christmas. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> You have to pay a considerable amount of money as well to get an extra one. I just want to let you know just how much we care. We uh, we ordered you one. Extra $30. <laughs> I don't remember how much it was, 10 US dollars or 500 Canadian or something. But they only give you enough for the band member. So yeah, we, we wanted to make sure that uh, we were actually going to send you another award. Ollie had the idea. <laughs> wow, this is, this is going off the rails. We don't ever get <laughs> any awards. We just, for whatever reason, got two in one year. And it'll be the most we ever get ever. But we got like a Canadian, British, columbia provincial music award and we were going to send it to you but but i was like ah let's just leave it here it's it's for us i don't want him my thought is that if they would have thought about me when they filled out the paperwork the first time and just put my name down initially oh. it probably would have been free and then they <laughs> but then they were just like nope who else recorded who else worked on top nope just us we're yeah. all right here just cool. us yeah I'll just put yeah. our One, names two, three, down four, and, then I, and then i was like hey where's mine and they were like fuck <laughs> <me>. <laughs> that's pretty much what i think happened but i do uh i do appreciate it especially oh, since whatever yeah. you had to pay so much after you forgot to put my name down initially <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's really cool Cool, you guys. Yeah, Canadian dollars really weak right now too, so it's really hard. Yeah, I'm, I, I also don't know like what to do with it. it. Feels a little strange to just like like part of me just wants to like carry it everywhere with me, like put it in the passenger seat of my car when I like go to the grocery store, <laughs> oh, yeah. put the seatbelt in, you know, just like yeah. make like a case that straps to my shoulder or something, so it's just there all the time. Yeah. Yet it's not in this shot. Yeah, the part of me that's winning just like leaves it on a shelf at my house that no one ever sees because. It feels yeah. sort of strange to be like, look at me. You're you're lucky to work with, with a band from a country where the standards are so low for winning awards that we won one. Yeah. I'm so I'm so lucky to work with you guys. You're right. I'm so lucky. <laughs> it is pretty wild though. Yeah. I mean, it, the, honestly, the Canadian government has been very good to us. Factor Canada is um is a government uh agency that that also helps out uh, musicians, bands, they do grants federally as well as uh, provincially. There's a few organizations that do provincial grants. I mean, dude, I mean, the, the only reason why we could have really gone, I mean, it, I think 2018 was the big, busiest year we ever had for touring. And, you know, we got to do Japan, Australia, New Zealand. The next year we did Tel Aviv. We did like a bunch of tour for like two US, two European, like a, a lot of touring. And I mean, that was at a time in the band where it was our income, our main income, which is amazing to be able to say, because it's so rare that that actually happens. And it's almost impossible when you go further into death metal that you can even ever achieve that. And a big reason why is because we've had assistance from the Canadian government to kind of help us float costs that we eventually then down the road recouped. But the initial costs are so high. And and now talking about bands that are touring today, I mean, we just booked our flights for our upcoming European tour in March 
and I don't know, almost double the price of what we paid for oh, flights yes. when, the last time we went went to Europe three years ago. So, And then, yeah, wow. all of those other expenses when you get over there too, they're also going to be, from okay. what I hear, they're going to be double, triple sometimes as far as gas and lodging and drivers and vans and buses. It's Yeah, I don't think people who don't do this understand the astronomical costs involved with Going over an ocean to tour. Yeah. Yeah. It's obscene, actually. It is. I don't understand how bands early in their career do it if they don't have either government assistance or tour support or something. It's all at-risk investment, essentially, too. Yeah. So it's like you have to put so much money up front and something like a weather system can come through and just like it's gone. Yeah. Obviously, a huge thing like a pandemic, like jacked tons of bands, you know, like put them like potentially years behind because the money was spent. It's just like, you can't get all of it back. It's a risky business. And like a lot of business is like that. You got to risk a lot to gain a little, but I wish there was a better way for bands because they're not like, I know they are businesses, but they're not always run like that. And I understand it. You know, they're these, they're not business people. They're like, let's start a musical project. They're musicians who just want to rock out. The early days of a new, of a new band, you're not thinking about money. You're thinking about how much can we, okay, so we should, we should print t-shirts. Who has enough on their credit card to put the t-shirt <laughs> printing cost? And then in yeah. six months, we'll be able to recoup it, you know, or like I always say this, but I remember early on, we had basically a rule that when we were on tour, we would take turns paying for gas at the gas station. So it's like, okay, so Toby, it's your turn to pay for gas. Like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> and that was at the time too, where we were all working regular jobs. So I'd work construction five days a week. And then I would beg my boss to have time off so I could go on tour and then come back and go right back to work like with like a day in between if I was lucky, but I would still be broke. You know what? Like what you just said about how the early days of a band are not about thinking about money. I think that that's a good thing though, because I'm sure there's people listening to this who are like business people or smart. We're going to be like, well, if I started a band, we'd be thinking about money from the beginning. And it's like, well, that's stupid because when you start a band, you need to put 100% of your energy into the thing itself, into the music and into creating something. If you're worrying about money at those early stages, it's like you don't know anything's going to happen. Why are you worrying about this? It's like that local band that I'm sure you've recorded. I've recorded them before that has three shitty songs, yet they're talking about what major label <laughs> they're going to sign to and how they're going to split shit up when uh, Sony signs them or whatever, like some version of that. We've all seen that. It's a, it, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to like, you know, figure out how shit's going to get paid for. Obviously, it's essential. But to approach it business first, music second, which I've seen people make this mistake. It's a terrible mistake. It has to be music first. And then as business starts to become a reality, then start to figure out how to how you're going to make it work. Try to be as organized as possible, of course, but don't really even worry about hardcore running it like a business until it's showing lots of signs that it's going to, in fact, become a business. Yeah. The only thing I would say about that is that when you start a band and you have X amount of costs, like you said, you always have to worry about those. You have to th consider those and all that kind of stuff. But setting a precedent early for 
how things will get repaid is really important because it'll save mm-hmm. you a lot of grief in the end. Mm-hmm. We went through a big growing pain period where somebody, you know, you had, you know, however many thousands of dollars on their credit card that was owed. And then, you know, years went by and we still weren't making money and we weren't able to pay that person back. And then the record keep weren't on top of that. And then it was confused. And it's like, okay, wait, it, are you actually owed this? How much was it? And what was it for? Oh yeah, totally. So you're right. You shouldn't think about it like, let's game the music industry by thinking about a business first, music second. No, you need to have that stuff figured out. I can tell you, for example, round one of Doth back in the day was not very organized money-wise. I fronted a shit ton of money. It's gone. And there was like, but like people weren't clear, didn't really know how much I fronted. I didn't even know how much I fronted, dude, it's so much. Yeah, it's just coming out. You just can't keep track at some point, you know? It's just like little expenses everywhere, and you're like, fuck, I want to save receipts in a shoebox. Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly, and it caused a lot of, like, weird, weird, bad blood. And um, now, round two with the band, I have it set up to where, from the get-go, any money that people put in from their own pockets is accounted for, calculated, and it's calculated exactly how they'll get paid back everything. I'm doing that because of my bad experience with what you were just talking about. Like I've been through it and it fucking sucks, but like it doesn't take much time to set that system up. So like that's kind of like a set and forget. You agree on how it's going to go and you agree on how it's going to be tracked and then you just do it when money gets spent. I think just having those conversations, you know, it's kind of like with bands in particular, honestly, any relationship, it's just best to like be upfront with that type of stuff. Like anything that's money related or business related or like uh, responsibility related, those are the things that can cause tension or, and are just too easily like, ah, eh, we'll figure it out. They're, like some of those can be uncomfortable conversations. So everyone's like kind of looking for excuses to avoid them. But man, it's just so much better to like get that stuff done up front. Like in my position too, coming from the producer angle is like, if you're dealing directly with a band and not a label or not a management company, which in a lot of ways I prefer because I have relationships with those people, but those like money and business things have to be like upfront. Like as far as like what your fee structure is and what types of things may happen that would change that fee structure. Like you need to let the artists know or whoever you're dealing with know like way up front because if that stuff pops up later, then it like just complicates everything. Then you have this like financial issue that's all of a sudden like working its way into what's supposed to be like a a purely creative environment. So it's good to keep those things like pretty separate and the best way to do that is to be like upfront about it and I, I feel like it's similar within a band too you know like just need to have those conversations and like al you kind of have a cheat code this time just because of your ex- business experience you know like mm-hmm. not only what you learn from doth round one but just with urm and like all, all the multiple entities that you essentially run and manage today like it's a little bit unfair for you to be like oh it's just super easy you just set up you know because you know you know i didn't say it was easy pay us for the podcast what are we getting paid (laughs) i didn't say it was easy just important you're right i'm sorry okay i'm sorry you're right (laughs) we had a fight it's okay okay the first few years i remember the first time i ever uh, taught a guitar lesson for money i mean if if you are a musician listening to this this is i think everybody probably has this experience at one point where you exchange musical content, whether it's lessons or an album or a t-shirt based on whatever, you exchange it for money. (laughs) 
and and there's like a thing in your head where you go, you dirty son of a bitch. Yeah, the thing I did that I studied for ten at that point years or whatever when I taught my first lesson ever, that's worth something. Of course. And, and even then it was the first lesson I ever taught and it, it was agreed upon with me and the student who was, he was like 16 years old or whatever. And he, and it was like, yeah, yeah. Okay. So X and X dollars, whatever. I don't think it was charging 20 bucks an hour or something, something stupid like that. And I remember at the end of the lesson, I was like, okay, cool. So uh, yeah, it's 20 bucks. Is that cool? And I was like nervous. And he's like, yeah, you got to talk to my mom. I don't have any money. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So I go upstairs and I talk to his mom and she says, oh, um, my husband has all the, the money, so you'll have to wait. Maybe next week I can, I can pay you. I, I don't know. And I remember being so, I was shaking because this is the first time I ever got any money in exchange for, for music. And I remember being like, I need to leave here with money. You agreed to this and I need the money that, that I'm owed. And she's like, oh, okay, let me, I think I have a 20 or something. You see this baseball bat? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want, you want your son to ever walk again? <laughs> I mean, shred again, shred yeah, again. Is what I mean. Right. And that's the first time I went to jail. And the second time I went to jail was, <laughs> no, it's a scary thing. And, and I feel like that was a really, a, a big stepping stone for me from being an amateur musician, whatever, to being like, this is what I can do for a living, actually. And I'm sure with both of you guys, you both have your own unique experiences with that. I know with Dave, I'm sure the first time you recorded a band for money where they paid you, that must have been a, a crazy experience. It felt weird to me. And it's actually like the response that you had right then for your first time. And you were like, fuck no, bitch, you're paying right now. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's that's pretty cool, actually. I don't think I would have had the same relationship. I had to learn those lessons, you know, because I right. always wanted to be like, oh, yeah, that's cool, and just keep everything nice and cool on the creative side. Like, that's sort of my default personality at times and is to be a little bit non-confrontational. I've had to kind of, like, work on that, not to, like, become an asshole, but just to assert myself and, like, not be taken advantage of. And, you, you know, you've learned those lessons the hard way. So now it was different. And I would, I'd probably come out the same way that you did. But the fact that you had that response off the bat is pretty cool. I don't know where I got it. I pulled it out of somewhere. It's not something that my character is necessarily always like. I just, for whatever reason, I was like, I need to prove this to myself that I can do this. Because if I don't do it now, I'll never do it. It's probably served you well. Like, I'm, you know, that is maybe one small piece of the puzzle of why you and why as far as most successful because you hold you like like you said what you have holds value and you're like determined to receive it in some fashion which is good yeah. what music should be like that but too often uh i think musicians kind of le lean the other direction where it's like it's just art man you know yeah and then, like get taken advantage of yes it's hard to set a price on yourself though yes i i find that that's a very difficult thing to do because at the end of the day, it's pretty arbitrary. I mean, there's ways to think about it. Like if, you know, you're totally booked and people are in line, then yeah, maybe you can raise your price. And if you're underbooked, then uh, maybe you should lower your price. Like little calculations like that you can make, but at the end of the day, it is pretty arbitrary. Like, how do you know what you should charge? Like, it's a tough one, I think, for producers. It was very uncomfortable for me when I first started charging. I felt super uncomfortable asking for money. And then when they paid me, I felt ashamed or it was weird. Yeah, I had a little bit of that too. Yeah. Like I wanted to, I wanted to look away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I still like sort of try and keep it separate in the studio. I, I try to avoid like when I'm dealing directly with bands or if I'm doing like a band from town or something like that, I try and like keep the stuff in the actual studio musical 
And then maybe I'll be like, hey, I'm going to I'll mention like I'm going to hit you up that invoice later. But then if we if you kind of like take it from another avenue, it does sort of help keep it separate because there's just still a little bit of discomfort on both sides. At this point, it's it's not usually from my side because I'm just I'm used to it by now, but it still feels weird to like mingle the two too much. They're just very different, man, like business and and music are just so different at least for me because i have to have like one foot in both sides you know and with artists i just prefer to keep it like all creative it just feels better that way it feels like that's what more my role is supposed to be in that situation or in that relationship it's worked well for us because i don't think we've ever paid you no (laughs) i've never paid you no I don't know where, like maybe somebody else. I, but I, I, I really don't think so. I really don't think we paid you. Yeah, no one's ever paid me. Actually, oh, I should. Yeah, <laughs> I should look into that. <laughs> it's always been taken care of. In fact, last time it it got a little tricky. There was some like communication. Oh yeah. Slowdowns with the label, and then I think I mentioned it to you, and I was like, hey. This has taken a while. I'm like, I'm having trouble like getting this taken care of. And then you kind of told, you gave me some backstory. You're like, oh, because of this. Hold on one moment, please. <laughs> and then like 20 minutes later, it was just like cash starts like falling from the sky. It's like, hell yeah, Awards. Dean. Dean called it in. <laughs> so yeah, sometimes like there can be other situations like in play also. But I think that's the only time we've really had to, to deal with anything and it was literally just like hey dean can you just like light a fire real fast and then right. you did immediately and it was taken care of so i prefer it that way the funny situation that you just described basically is all right can we get that guitar take one more time uh, oh by the way um i haven't been paid anything for what i'm doing right now <laughs> but anyway anyway so, so guitar you know it's just yeah it's funny to combine them it could end up being strange yeah yeah yeah, yeah. what do you think uh, is a good time to start charging for services musical services like what's the right time i think that the first time i taught guitar specifically it was i wanted to move in that direction i knew that it was worth something when i when i realized that if you go to mechanic school and you are working on people's cars for at that point i had been playing guitar for 10 years and i had been studying music theory i had been studying you know, learning how to play songs. I was in a band that was now playing shows. I had been in multiple bands. I had recorded a few albums that are just like home albums or whatever. And I knew I was pretty good at guitar. And the amount of time I put in, I thought about, I'm like, if I was a fucking, if I was a carpenter and I'd spent that much time on this thing, I would be getting paid. Why don't I start pushing myself in that direction? And, and I think the time is when you can make the switch mentally that your expertise is worth it and and it sucks that as musicians as artists and i'm sure as producers uh we devalue ourselves we we don't think that we're worth it because society has kind of told us that art is kind of whatever you know what i mean like at mm-hmm. least in north american society oh you play in a band what what people are kind of excited but oh yeah maybe i'll buy, buy you a beer for whatever you know i and i mean this is years after i started teaching but during the pandemic Guess what kept everybody sane? Art. Everybody was sane because of music, because of TV shows, because of artistic expression, because of books. This stuff is so valuable and we just devalue ourselves because we see the behind the curtain and we go, all I did was sit there for two hours and play random notes until something kind of cool came out, I think. But it's derivative. It sounds like this band, blah, blah, blah. None of that stuff matters. You know, it really is make the switch in your brain that the thing that I'm doing provides a service to someone and that is as valuable as 
getting to work on time. That's as valuable as, you know, having something fixed in your house. Like it is a valuable service. And man, we just fuck ourselves, honestly. Yeah, pretty much. That's actually why in lots of cases, it is good for a band or producer to get a manager. That's the number one reason I think is to collect on money and to set a price for things. It's not so much like with a producer manager, for instance, it's not about them getting gigs for the producer. It's about them negotiating things and getting payment. And I think it's precisely because so many producers are uncomfortable with that and yeah. will devalue themselves and just don't want to talk about money or don't think they care about it that much or whatever. A good producer manager takes care of that. Yeah, and I'm not saying that people who aren't ready for one should run out and get one, but I think that is the primary role for one. It's a little different with bands because the band manager is out there looking for opportunities, but still at the end of the day, they are negotiating prices and having those conversations that maybe the band doesn't want to have, doesn't feel like they want to get into an adversarial type relationship with the people that they work with. Yeah. So a manager will be that person. When you say producer manager, what, what, what do you mean? There are managers for producers. Not every producer has one, but they're like a manager, yeah, just like an artist manager, but they manage producers and uh, they'll be the ones who negotiate the contracts with the labels and the bands oh. and who will send the invoices and make sure that the payments are happening huh. and who will oftentimes control the schedule and the bookings and stuff. Wow, I guess I've never had that experience. I didn't know that was really a thing. Yeah, so they'll handle like the whole like admin side of things that... Logistics, yeah. Yeah, that a lot of producers aren't good at or don't want to deal with. Right. And it can also like at the same time like find you opportunities. It's just like the exact same role they would be in a band. For a band as an artistic entity, same thing they would be for a producer as an art. Say, I'm an artist, Dean. I'm an artist too. So it's to be like the same thing, you know, like uh, uh, find your opportunities, negotiate your value, that sort of stuff. I've like dipped my toe in that world a few times and it's nothing's like really panned out. None of them have been like unpleasant experiences by any means, but like didn't really end up like gelling right. At this point, it's like, well, it's working so far. I might as well keep nude on my own and not have to like slice a piece of the pie out for anyone else. I think I could imagine a time in your career that let's say, and by the way, I knew you were an artist because you grew that soul patch, but <laughs> I can imagine a time in your career where let's say you get a phone call tomorrow and for example, Mastodon wants to come and record with you. So this is a, uh, I would say a bigger band than you've tracked probably, right? Yeah. Yeah. So let's say if you get that and you start and your career starts going, it is working longer time scales. And working with more people, I guess that would be, okay, now it is too much for me to handle on my own. There's too much scheduling. This guy's flying in for three weeks just to work on riffs and then they'll yeah. fly back. So I imagine that at that point, then that would make more sense, I guess, or what? Potentially. I mean, I honestly, like it just never gets quite as complicated as it would be for a band as a producer. I feel like, like it can get busy, but I'm still just 
one person, maybe with an assistant or, you know, like, so it, I think it's always like, it's pretty much manageable if you have the like personality for it and the yeah. time for it and the will. That's more it. Yeah. It's definitely doable. It's just like some people don't want to. Like, I mean, truthfully, I don't want to. But you're able to, you're fully capable of it. I'm able to, yeah, I'm capable of it and it works fine now. And I'm also like a little bit guarded as far as like how I run my, I guess, business and like how I want my yeah. like role as a producer and future as a producer to go. So I just like to control that rather than like let someone else in that may have like a different vision. That could be a good or bad thing. I don't know because I'm just like sticking with this for now. Well, the thing is lots of these producers who have managers, it's oftentimes not that they could do it on their own, though some can. Yeah. Some can for sure. A lot of them really suck at it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a producer manager, but it just, it's in their best interest to have a partner who handles that side of things Yeah, because they themselves, they're definitely smart enough to do it, but maybe they're not organized enough. Maybe they're not, just don't think about that shit. Or they just really want, want like, as we've been talking about for a while, they just really want to separate those two worlds, like, yep. completely. Like, they want to never, ever have a discussion about finances with an artist or even a record label, like, ever. You know, because like, yeah, it's just easier for them and they prefer to only be creative and then they can just defer everything to the other guy. And, and like, you can almost do a little like good cop, bad cop in that sense, you know, if you want. Yeah. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast and you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix a song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. We just hired someone. We're a self-managed band, and we've been self-managed for almost the entirety of the band. We've been going on 14 years now. And, um, and we just hired someone to be our assistant. Hmm. So we basically have now 
he's not, he's not quite a manager, although if he needs to fill that role for certain circumstances, then he can be. He's also our front of house technician and he's our tour manager. So, you know, we have him now, when he's at home, he's helping us work on projects. So we have a project that just came out where we want to, we're starting filming really soon, actually, uh, a new music video that we think is going to be fucking bonkers. I think it's gonna be crazy. And we wanted to crowdfund it because it's going to be unbelievably expensive, like embarrassingly expensive. And so we needed somebody to bounce ideas off of on how to do that. How does a band do a Kickstarter? How does a band crowdfund successfully and, and communicate properly with the, with the supporters? And how do we deliver those and how, the logistics of it? And it's like, if it was something that the band took on, it would take time out of our writing schedule. But as it is now, we have somebody to handle that and that among other things. And it's allowed me to free up time to focus more on writing at home and having a better social media presence. And so mm-hmm. like, bo- like as it is, it's working extremely well. I mean, another thing too, he introduced us, he, he called the, and I, and it, it, this is not going to work. I, let's say, I'm not going to say this. Okay. I'm actually not even going to say the name of the brand, but he called a brand's factory and said, I represent this band. We want to work with you guys. And they gave us an artist endorsement. I would have never done that. And he called, he found the factory hotline, got in t- touch with somebody and like said, here's the de- details. <laughs> the I hotline? Want, or whatever, yeah, yeah 20, $2.99 a minute. The endorsement now, hotline. Now factory the hotline. Yeah, no, please tell us what the brand <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I went to this crazy club the other night called the Factory Hotline. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, but having a having somebody like that is great, but they're not in this the typical because generally a manager takes fifteen percent. Yeah, of gross, and you guys just don't pay. Him. <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. yeah, he works for crumbs, literal yeah, crumbs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. not a typical manager setup. Right, doesn't yeah. get paid. Yes, That's exactly. Great. It's a little atypical in the way that he gets nothing and we get all of his work. So it is atypical in that way. But yeah, it's it's been going great for us. No, we do pay him, of course. He's going great. He's going great. In that in that regard too, because it would have been a lot tougher for you guys, like I guess certain personalities to call that factory yourself and be like, I play in this band. Can you can Impossible. we get things? You know? So it's like it's way easier for him being one step removed and like having this position of like authority i guess it is that's like sure. separate separate from like you know he can say that without like thinking of like eight-year-old dean like yes just like learning how to play guitar like and being terrible at it so there, there are some benefits there for sure i feel that sometimes too when i'm like in you know negotiations for like fees for an album or something like that i was like man it would be a little easier like it's i gotta sometimes i just gotta like like type it out and like turn away and hit the button, you know, when I, when I'm sending quotes sometimes, because I don't want to miss an opportunity. And it's like tough to like gauge that value on your own. Like even for me doing this for a long time, someone else would be like, Oh hell yeah, this is what you're getting. And just like make it happen. How do you break that down then? And I, I don't want to go into too many details for pricing or something, but do you break down your day rate? Do you come up with a gear rental rate? Do you have, you have lodging? You have like, like, how do you do that? Yeah, I sort of price it out. That's kind of the only way I can like make sense of it and feel like it's mostly fair for everyone. Like I kind of start with the day rates and then, you know, if the band's going to utilize the guest house, I just kind of have like a little fee structure that stays sort of behind the curtain and I put it together and then I offer it as one price with like, this is essentially what you get approximately this amount of days in the studio, this Mm -hmm. amount of days like in town 
this is what's included in that. And then it's all one price. And then with the caveat, like if something major happens, like, and we spend an extra two weeks, I may have to change this. But I, like, I kind of like, I really try to avoid that at all costs just because that's like kind of like a predatory studio thing, more like local bands and stuff like that. You right. just find someone in the yellow pages when those existed and call them up. They would just like nickel and dime you to death. So I try and just yeah. give a fee and everything is based on that. But then like at that point, it becomes a negotiation. So mm. sometimes I'll overshoot depending on like where the band is in their career and what I think I can add to them. It's It, it gets tricky. It's like there's a lot of things that come into place. But I, I'll have a starting point just based on like a free fee structure that I have. And then like things move up and down from then because like you throw a number out there and that's like not always like going to be the final number. Are you expecting the number to go down when you throw it out there? Like is that... A built-in assumption. I'm like ready for it. It actually doesn't happen a lot. Usually it's like, okay, cool. That's fair. You're worth that. And then they just agree to it. But occasionally they'll be like, eh, is there anything we can do to work on that? And then I'll look at it. And then maybe that means just like shaving some off the top. Maybe that means like actually spending a little bit less time, but then like how much are you willing to sacrifice essentially music or art that has your name on it too. So it's, it's not like you can just cater to like the budgetary demands of every project if it's going to hurt the final product. And I also just can't work for like half price. Like this is my, you know, it's how I pay bills too. So it's like, it's kind of just all a balance. Are you still bartending at the factory hotline on Saturday nights? Only uh, every other Saturday now. Yeah. And then oh, I that's do, great. Congrats. Yeah. Congrats. Yeah, and yes, I, started, I started serving breakfast at a place on Sunday morning. So it's kind of like playing both sides of the field there, you know? Oh, okay. Sure. Right, right. Are you still wearing that cute little miniskirt? I, I am. Okay, nice. Okay, great. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm just trying to imagine. I'm trying to remember what it looks like. I sent you a picture this past weekend, Dean. Don't pretend. Oh, shit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I'll check out that picture. Yeah. I, I think that in some cases, like when you're negotiating a record deal, whatever number they throw out, they're expecting you to ask for more. Yeah. So if you don't, you're stupid. Yeah. Unless there's like something stated up front, like this is the best offer we've ever made. We can absolutely not go higher. Like they're expecting you to ask for more. And then and then have some negotiation. It just depends. There are no like rules to this stuff. That's part of this business emerging from music situation where like the people you're dealing with usually aren't business first. Like even the people who are in almost purely business roles, like at uh, record labels and management companies, like if you find yourself in that role for death metal, it's probably unlikely that that was your path from like age 14. You know what I mean? Like you came into it from the creative side. So I feel like this, the standards that may exist in other areas of business don't quite exist in like business for music because everyone's just kind of like found themselves in that position. Like maybe I'm wrong there. That's like, I'm also that guy who like, I was never, I'm never meant to be like a business first person. So you just figure it out on the way. And then every interaction you have, you sort of learn from it. And that like, like just as if, just like I learn from the bands I work with, like on the production side of things, every time I have a, a business relationship with a new person or even the same people on a continual basis, I'm learning new things about like how things are done in that world as far as 
okay, this is how negotiations work. This is what my first offer should be. This is the caveat I should add with my first offer in these certain situations. You know, you don't want to, if you think you're going to like price yourself out of a project, but it's something you really want to do, then maybe be like, hey, this is what would be my normal fee. But I really like the band. If we need to work with that a little bit to make it work for both parties, I'm willing to do that. So that can be a caveat for certain situations. Now, everyone that's listening that I've done business with when I haven't, said that they're like wait what the fuck i i have actually have a question very specifically about the invo- the quote that we just got for the last <laughs> album i believe it said final offer hard yeah hard yeah, offer thousand dollar <laughs> nice canadian discount oh yeah and when i, when I read that i immediately thought you just added a thousand dollars and then took it off of as a discount which is what i in, in, immediately thought I was like, okay well this means nothing maybe we're stupid i've never even thought to change the price i've never been like eh, let's get that i'm just like oh yeah this, yeah, you're worth it. Yeah. It's worth it. Ah, fuck. The reason why we went to you is because... Because I'm handsome. Yeah, sure. Um, but the Monolith of Inhumanity album, Cattle Cap, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. It sounded yeah. amazing. And that band went from being a smaller band that we saw, uh, that I saw in 2008 or something in Seattle, uh, Summer Slaughter, and they were almost opening or maybe they were two two of eight or whatever. And they uh, they went from that and they just shot up. And the quality of the album, the production, the boost and the songwriting and the catchiness and the hooks, I mean, that's the reason why we went and we saw the studio documentaries and we thought, oh my God, this is, we need to do this. And I don't even think we ended up going to you until another, I don't even, four or five years after that. But we always thought, man, we got to go to this guy. So yeah, I mean, for us, I think it was, the first one was scary. It was more than what we were expecting to pay, but luckily the, you know, Season of Mist, our, our label, it's been our label for the last 10 something years. They said, it's a chance, it's a risk. If you guys want to take it, we'll back you. You know, we'll make sure this happens. And then the next album, they said, of course, yeah. I mean, let's go back to Dave and do another album. Yeah. That being said, please don't rip us off for the next one. <laughs> please. <laughs> I don't know. I've been tracking that Kickstarter. The first one, I think, honestly, kind of goes back to me having that relationship with Gordon. I mean, he told me that specifically. Gordon Conrad from Season of Mist. Yeah, from Seasons and, and me knowing him from Relapse and him trusting my output. He told me, he's like, when I threw that price out, he was like, this is definitely like above what, you know, these guys are contracted for. He's like, but I'm going to push like personally to make this happen. Maybe he was just telling me that, but. No, that's true. Yeah, but he did. And then it, I mean, I think it has worked out for everyone involved. Like fruits fallen from the tree of our spire <laughs> into my garden as well. Well, I noticed that you you got a quad cortex there. What is that? It's a quad cortex, yeah. All right. No, okay, anyway, so next question. No, are you using that instead of the Kemper or what? I definitely like it more than the Kemper. Wow. In general. Now I kind of just use like a wider range of shit. I'm still usually using amps like on final tones. Sure. Usually. The quad cortex is really sick though. And uh, there's a few albums, like I don't, I don't know if either of you guys have heard the nuclear power trio stuff. It's not, we actually, we did a record last year that is not out yet. It's a little, I think it's a tricky time to release an album with a band that has Putin in it. So maybe that has, maybe that's part of <laughs> well, why. What did he do? Did he do something? Maybe that's why. I don't I think he is having an argument. Yeah. Uh, currently with a country. Dude, that quad cortex is pretty fucking great. Yeah. Um, I've got one that I have not messed with it enough, mm-hmm. but the little bit that I have. And also we used it for tracking tone on yeah. the three songs that uh, we've done already. 
It's pretty fucking great. The cool thing about it, and one of the things that stands out, like not only does it s- sound fantastic, and like the captures are actually like I think a little bit above what you get with a Kemper, like really true to source and and more flexible. But the malleability of it and the interface of it is amazing. The reason why I brought up the nuclear power thing is because that band requires tons of different tones. Like every song needs kind of new tones. Like some of the rhythm stuff goes from song to song throughout the album. But anytime there's a lead tone or we need a wah now or we need an effect now, they, all of them, uh, the, the band is so diverse. Like it just needs, you just need different tones. Hmm. So with the quad cortex, you have like, you start with your basic, you know, template that you make for the album. And then if you need another tone, you just like pull a pedal down and bring it up. And then all of the encoders are your knobs. It literally feels like very similar to having an amp and this huge pedal board right in front of you where it's like very hands-on. It's just like way easier to like, you know, I don't know exactly what I'm looking for, but I kind of have an idea like this pedal or this piece of gear might get me there. And you just like snap it in and start tweaking knobs like as if the pedal's right in front of you. And it really makes like uh, the creative part of tone finding really cool. Like that's not really something that comes up too much in a band like Arsbar. You like build your tones. Yeah. He said, he just said, you're not creative. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> you yeah. son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> but we like, you build your tones and you have your vibes and you kind of have like a list. And then um, it's not often you need something that's like totally different. But for some projects you do, like in the rock realm, it's just more common. That's where the quad cortex really shines. And you can save them all as scenes and it is really cool. This is a commercial now for the quad cortex, but it's so sick just how quickly you can like make things happen. If you need like an expression pedal, it takes two seconds to plug one in and map it to literally any control on any of the devices that you have in your patch. And all of a sudden now you're controlling that knob with a pedal. So it, yeah, it's wicked. I do oh, a lot. I, that's I also great. need to spend more time like really fleshing it out and they're kind of constantly updating it and I haven't quite caught up with all of that because it's just not like I, you know, I'm not always tracking guitar or whatever. This It sounds great because, and if anybody's listening that works at Neural and I've talked to many people, I mean, the, the product that Dave is talking about right now sounds really nice and I would love mm-hmm. to get my hands on one. Oh my goodness, <laughs> it'd be so cool to try it out. <laughs> Reached out many, many times uh, replying to emails about working together on my YouTube channel to uh, absolute silence. So hey, if you want to send <laughs> one my way, I promise you I'll do lots of videos about it. Maybe, uh, maybe have your guy, you know, your uh, factory hotline guy. Factory. Call him up. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll see if I can find the the neural factory hotline number for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please do. Yeah, please do. Yeah. It is phenomenal. It really is. Yeah. And the box is really cool. Yeah. I will say the packaging is I mean, who cares, right? But like when you get that box, it's fucking cool. Yeah. I don't think that you should overlook what the functionality and the sound of a piece of music here based on the packaging. However, you're saying the, the whole experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. So much care went into it. I wish I knew. Yeah. Play, uh, <laughs> I wish I knew. Yeah, you'll, I, I, you'll, I, I, nev- you'll never see it. Two. You'll okay, never so see it. I'm looking never. one. You just have to take our word for it. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> yeah. I agree. I, I, I appreciate that. I'm not as mad when it's like an expensive piece. And then they also put some time and, money into the packaging but sometimes when i get like a 40 dollar item and i was like if you just put this in a poly bag it would have been 22 thousand <laughs> dollar packaging with four for a 40 dollar item i was like okay i like the packaging but i didn't really want to pay for it i would have rather just like 
spend five fewer dollars. But for like a relatively high dollar item like the quad cortex, it is appreciated. The packaging should match the experience. I sort of feel the same way about like plug-in GUIs. It's kind of hard, like even if a, a particular processor or plugin sounds really good, but the interface just like looks like, you know, Windows 95-ish, uh, it's probably not going to find a place like in my workflow. Like it's just important. The aesthetics of any product need to sort of match the quality you're looking to. Yeah, you're shallow. I get it. Yeah, you're all about looks. I got you. <laughs> yeah, mostly. Yeah, yeah. Did you guys keep the boxes for the for the quad cortex? Maybe you guys can mail me one of the boxes. <laughs> you know, I don't really keep boxes because I'm not a fucking pack rat. Right. <laughs> but that is one box I haven't been able to bring myself to throw away yet. I'll take it. Mail me the box. You want the box? Oh, yeah. I'll send you the, the book that comes with it, too. Oh, the book? Mine was a demo unit, so it was a little beat up. Did you get the book? I think I did get the book. When I got it, I pulled the package off because it was shipped to me directly from another artist, like, because it was a demo unit. And uh, I was like, I wonder who had this before. And it was, I don't think this is, I don't think this should be proprietary knowledge. Uh, it was, uh, what's the guy's name? Michael Bateo, the the guitar player from Nitro. Yeah, Michelangelo Bascio or Batio or whatever. Yeah, that guy. I've never known how to pronounce his last name, but the eight-headed guitar guy. <laughs> yeah, I think he is in Man of War now. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't know. Yeah. I should have paid attention. That guy seems very, very sweet. Like I watch him sometimes on YouTube, his live streams, and he's like your neighborhood guitar teacher, sweet man. And he's like, well, you know, you just got to get, and then he just plays <laughs> insane stuff. He's like, well, you know, it's just like, ah, oh, this guy deserves all yeah. the success for sure. He's kind of like Ingve without the cocaine habit. That's right. Kinda, that's, <laughs> well, Ingve says he doesn't do cocaine. Ingve posted on Instagram, uh, I don't do, which hmm. is an amazing post to have to make. Hmm. I love, hmm. anytime you have to deny a drug, <laughs> it's like, whoa, dude. <laughs> like That's just what it said? Well, I think it was, you know, him doing mile high kicks. I don't do cocaine. Yeah. Like this I, don't kick off do the stage. cocaine today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He drives like 150 miles an hour in a sports car. I, I don't know. Yeah. He's, he's, he definitely has a big Coke energy, but I, all allegations. Yeah. <laughs> big Coke energy. <laughs> he does. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> big Coke energy is definitely a thing. That's, a, that's great. I heard a story, and I don't think it's true, but I'm going to say this as an unsubstantiated story that, yes, this is true. The following happened. A buddy of mine went to a festival. He used the porta potty that was at the festival. Maybe it was backstage or something like that in Europe. And somebody opens up the door and it's Ingve and he goes, Oh, sorry. And he closes the door. And the guy's sitting on on like the whatever the porta potty thing. And he's like, Oh my, was that Ingve? And Ingve like <laughs> then opens the door back up and says, Here's a pick. And he gave him a pick. So like I've heard this story. I don't remember who told me this, but I I've held on to it like a gem in my brain. Like, I hope that's true. That's so awesome. I am going to say that I think that might be true. Sounds true. Yeah. Because I said it as a podcast. That's right. <laughs> Science is bare leg as you're sitting in a porta potty trying to poop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so here's a signature. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Isn't maybe the most influential guitarist for me? I think Paul Gilbert probably is when it comes to shred guitar. Mm -hmm. But Ingve Malmsteen, his live performance is the best out of 
anyone that I've ever seen, in my opinion. He plays like he is... On cocaine? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Rips all the strings off of his guitar at the end of the set. He's kicking picks. He's drop-kicking picks into the audience, and yeah. you can see them, and he's got so much distance on it. He plays faster than the rest of the band. They just have to kind of keep up with him. The drummer is on the side of the stage, not the middle, the side. There's the amps and the drummer, and the drummer's over there. It's unreal. If you guys haven't seen him, I don't know if you guys have seen him, but... I haven't. He's got great outfits. Unbelievable. I really want to. He's come through town and I like, Yeah. I have lots of like firsthand accounts of how difficult he can be in multiple situations. Sure. Uh, you know, but whatever. My experience with him, even though it was my dad that worked with him, I didn't work with him. I was just there. Our experience, The Levies, mm -hmm. with Mr. Ingve. I love I love that show, The Levies. I love that show. <laughs> the Levies, yeah. yeah. The Levies love go it. to Prague with Ingve. That was a good episode. He was totally fine with us, and our involvement with him was really great, actually. And none of that stuff ever came in our direction. Hmm. I was also 17, yeah. and he wanted my dad on his record. So I don't know if the context was just different, but I have seen what everyone's talking about directed towards other people. Yeah. I mean, you know, he, the guy's been touring for a long time. Like, yeah, the person I saw it directed at had it coming too, though. Yeah. He's maybe earned the right to like be a little more demanding than like a lot at a live show or something. So whatever. I saw him go after somebody for something. And honestly, the person really did have it coming. So hmm. they just had to be put in their place. They were doing some really dangerous shit, oh. like dangerous shit with electricity right? during sound check. Like stuff that could literally electrocute and kill somebody. I heard a story that he was like auditioning or whatever, a new uh, tech, maybe not a guitar tech, but like a, a stagehand. He went into audition or he went into rehearsal and they play one song and this guy that he's auditioning or he has, he's a potential hire. He's very young. And so he's standing, standing side stage, just waiting for, you know, whatever. And Ingve doesn't look at him and he throws his guitar up backwards into the air at this guy. And the guy goes, oh my God. And he runs and he grabs the guitar out of the air. He throws it. I mean, if you've seen him live, he literally does that. He throws the guitar and Ingve turns around. And he goes, you're not fired and then walks off the stage. So it's like, <laughs> that's crazy. It's like he, he walked out of my imagination onto the stage. Like here he is. And then he's like, oh, there he's right there. It's, so he's like a cartoon of a man. <laughs> it's pretty sick. You know, you fucking want rock stars. Yes. Here you go. Yeah. You know who I saw actually recently that crushed was Steel Panther. They crushed, dude. The musicians in that band. Yeah. Man, Satchel is... Satchel is super sick. Fuck, he's so good. Yeah, I almost saw them recently, but still never have. Whatever you think about the music, like I'm, I personally think that there's a band I, I kind of grew up on. I, I like their old band. I think it was Metal, Metal Shop or Metal School or something. Yeah. And I loved how goofy and all over the top that is. And, you know, they have funny songs. The lyrics are just oh outrageous and ridiculous mm -hmm. they haven't changed a single word since they recorded it they don't care and then they back it up with a like crazy musicianship and it's like yeah damn that's sweet yeah they're good they're good and they do super well too holy shit they're self-managed band yeah i don't know if they still do the what is it the three shows a week thing one in like hollywood west hollywood vegas and then one other place oh wow they did that for a while from what I understand and the guarantees on each one of those is yeah. fucking obscene wow. and they just did that 
every week pretty much for the longest time. I don't know if they still are or not, but man, that band fucking crushes it. Yeah, I think that was like in that like metal school or yeah, I know what you're talking about. I can't remember. It was like from when they were transitioning and Steel Panther because they they were huge already like in that LA scene. And then I think they did that Hoffer Teacher song and video like right at the same time where they were changing their name like just like becoming Steel Panther. And then I I believe I'm correct. Then that kind of like launched them and then they did the, that whole first album which sounds great and it's literally it's like the best like cock rock like ever it's so good it's like better than the original like cock rock they did the exact same style like super honest feeling but better with like better production better songwriting better performances it's awesome yeah satchel was in racer x with paul gilbert he lived with paul gilbert oh i had no idea wow that's legit those guys are all in their mid 50s and i think michael star the singer i think he's 58 it's not really an act it's like oh those guys were just like around during the 80s yeah like they were playing music they made it they're the ones that are still around i have had a couple buddies that go yeah i would way rather listen to winger or listen to all these other bands that were actually there it's like yeah dude these guys were there man they just aren't the old school band that you listen to they were like maybe 10 years younger than the guys that were really famous then but they were there man they were in on it so and they're better yeah i mean i went home with like fuck i gotta play guitar this guy's so inspiring man so good yeah sick but i suck so it's do do you get that feeling from a lot of guitar players or like dave do you get that feeling from hearing other people's mixes like the fuck i better go work yeah not as much as maybe i did in the past it's like now has to like really stand out and then i kind of yeah it's changed like that feeling has evolved like the longer i've been doing this but it definitely was a big part of what like kept me going in the beginning is trying to hold yourself to those standards you know it's like part of the mentality and any like creative force where you're trying to do it on like be actually in the scene at like a national international level is you have to like put yourself in there like you have to hear something that's amazing and be like i have to get myself to this level rather than like putting what you hear up here and yourself down here you know you can imagine what i did with my hands there if you're just listening it was really obscene i don't think you should make that gesture again <laughs> yeah that's gonna be definitely blurred out oh my god dude with both fingers dude Gross. family show dude <laughs> what was the first album you think you heard where you were like I need to do this. It would almost definitely be an Annie Sneap mix. And I think it may be some of the earlier Arch Enemy stuff. Oh, yeah. There's a few. There's a few in there. I, I think like Wages of Sin. Is that right? Maybe. I think it was like the first one. God, it must have had a gr- big impression on you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, my Seriously. God, dude. Stop making that hand gesture. Jeez. <laughs> It's actually making me sick. There were a few. That was one like earlier in my career when I was like listening to like a lot of punk rock and grindcore. It was Asuk because they were like mm. a death metal band that made their way into the grind world. And they were. So that's how you pronounce it? I think that's how I say it. Yeah. Okay. They recorded with Scott Burns. Yeah, pretty sure. Had more sound. And I was like, whoa, this sounds sick because everything else in that genre sounded terrible. 
There's that one. I remember some of the old, some of the earlier old man's child stuff. Oh, yeah. That was like uh, like the earlier. They did a record at Sunlight with Gene Holligan playing drums, which is like the drum sounded incredible. And they had like a little bit of that Swedish chainsaw, like sunlight tone, which wasn't really typical for like essentially melodic black metal stuff they were doing. There were a couple. Like uh, there's some crossover between just like my personal favorite music. Like a lot of those albums were just like influences on me just from the musical standpoint. Was it like uh, one of those things like, I have to do this. Like, there's no alternative. Yeah, and it pulled me in. I was analyzing, like, how okay, well, that snare sounds crazy. It's like, how does it sound so cool? And like, now I know it's because it was a sample mostly. But uh, right. at the time, I was like, how do I achieve this? What about you, Dean? <laughs> was there like, uh, you had to? Yeah, Paul Gilbert and Steve Vai. I was really big into, but Paul Gilbert was like, how does somebody pick this hard and this fast and this accurate? And just mind blowing. I'll still actually. I, I think I posted on. This is like maybe seven or eight years ago or something like that. I posted on Facebook like, oh man, or Instagram or something. I love this Paul Gilbert live or instructional DVD. I watched it a lot when I was a kid and I still love it. And I got one of my buddies who I used to watch it with who played guitar. And he said, you're still watching that? And I said, there's so much there. And it's, guitar is relatively new instrument. I mean, electric guitar is very new, you know, but we've had some of the best players ever that, now the instrument is going in a, in an interesting kind of direction. Lots of different directions. You have guys like Aaron Marshall. You have the dudes from Animals as Leaders. You have Pliny. You have all these kind of newer, like, wow, they're playing something really different. They're not doing fast alternate picked runs. They're doing jazz-inspired, two-hand tapping, rhythmic slap stuff. And, it's, and it is different. But there's something about the a big pick, hard, and... Oh, this is going in a gross direction. Uh, don't look at me like that. I didn't mean it like that. Oh my God. No, big, um, big pick energy. Just sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I got something in my brain. But there's just something about like the 80s tone of guys like Paul Gilbert that just, it just does it for me, man. It's like, that's what I want to do. But the problem I feel, and, and Dave, you, you said exactly this. You said, how do I get that snare tone? And yeah. then you're like, that was probably sampled. People, <laughs> people don't know that. And that exact yeah. thing happens with guitar. I I taught kids. I mean, I taught at a music school for for four years or something, and I would teach a lot of kids. Uh, I think I started 40 students a week, so I'd see a lot of of people. And every once in a while, you get a student who cared, who actually gave a shit. And I would be a little worried because they're entering into a world of lies. You listen to a recorded guitar track, it's lies. I mean, it's almost always lies, unless they're listening to... I mean, even then, back then, splicing tapes together, take after take, it's the thousand, thousandth take of a six-month recording session or whatever. And even then, it's, you know, it's a, a very hard standard to, to hold yourself up to, up to. But now, I mean, it's so much harder. And when I was younger, I, got, I came up with listening to Tool, then Opeth, then Dream Theater. That was kind of like my, my path you know, to more technical music, my way into death metal was like Opeth into Necrophagist and Dream Theater into Between the Barrier to Me. And like, I liked all those bands, but now you have bands like Rings of Saturn, uh, a band like Lorna Shore, Jason Richardson. Now these are examples of incredible musicians, but they're also utilizing modern recording techniques. A band like Sereption is a great example as well. This is like the best you can get multiplied by modern recording techniques and it sets a standard for people that are coming up in in music that might be too high for them to go 
oh yeah, I can, I can attain that. And, and they shouldn't necessarily try to attain that because it is impossible. I mean, if you listen to the album, the albums that we've done with you, Dave, it's like, I didn't just walk in, go take one, rip through, see you later. Like, you know what I mean? Like we record all these albums live. Oh, right. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Other bands do this. We don't do this. Yeah. So the generation of drummers, Alex Rudinger's generation of drummers, I noticed this and Dave, you probably noticed it too in the studio. The ones that grew up listening to sampled and edited drums, but when they were kids, they didn't know that they were edited or sampled. They just thought that that's how you play drums. So you end up with freaks like Alex Rudinger and that whole school. So there's something to be said for that bar. I agree. And then kids not knowing that it's fake-ish and then upping their level. It's like the whole thing with a running the four minute mile, people thought it was impossible until somebody did it. And then once somebody did it, then a bunch of other people did it shortly thereafter. And now, I mean, running a four minute mile is still impressive, but it's no longer this insane feat. Like it just means you're a good athletic person who can run kind of fast. Drummers are maybe like the best example of that. And probably the one that I thought would be the most unlikely because of like the physical demands I, I felt like would have created like a hard ceiling for some of these. But like, it's insane how good like the cream of the crop drummers are like live now. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, even though we think and or we, I'm just assuming maybe we as people always tend to think it can't go any further. Yeah. It's just a natural thing because we can't see how it can go further personally, but someone will take it further because someone always takes it further. So I feel like anytime I feel like there's a ceiling on something, I need to just step back and uh, realize that I only think that because it's not me that's going to break the ceiling, but someone is going to step up because that's what always happens. So like things like BPM, Dean, I know your band like is fast as fuck. Those are speeds that, you know, when Doth was around round one, Nobody even considered reaching those types of BPMs. We had a song on the Concealers album that hits 270. Right. And that was beyond fast for that time. It's still pretty fast, but it's not yeah. It's not rare anymore. It's not like some rare thing. In 2008, it was a rare thing to hit 270. Now, I mean, it's fast, but it's not pushing the envelope at all. For sure. Some of the best death metal is written in that tempo range, for sure. 220, 240. I mean, Necrophagist is all 220, 240. See, you're you're like, yeah, it's slow, but cool. Yeah. Well, the thing is, it's all relative <laughs> to what you're playing, right? I mean, you adapt to the tempo. And, and for us, you know, we think about the relationship between the, between the kick and the snare. And we, and we want to bump that up. And we want to, you know, a gravity blasting is, you know, it's a staple to the genre. And you know, Spencer's been working on his doubles on his feet for a long time and he's really like pushing the speed there. And, but I think a big thing is the marketing of it. We market ourselves as, and when we go on stage, we say we're the fastest band in the world. That just sounds cool as fuck. I don't care if it's true. I don't give a shit. It's so cool. (laughs) Can we do a song on the next one? That's the slowest song in the world, but everything is just like 128 notes. Right. (laughs) Is that a thing? Like, but we, then like the the BPM is like 14 or something. Right. Let's do that. Please, let's do that. Okay, yeah. You know, it's like when Howard Stern called himself the king of all media back in the day. Oh, totally. Yeah. He said that before he was the king of all media. I love it. I love Mm -hmm. it, dude. Yeah, and then he did become the king of all media pretty much once the movie came out and the 
books and musicians in extreme metal or metal in general can really benefit from looking at the marketing schemes that popular bands have. There's beefs between groups. My favorite lately, and I look back at this now and I go, man, this is an amazing idea is Fred Durst coming out and saying, people hate us. People give us shit. We don't give a fuck. It's like, they were like a huge band. They were huge. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I guess the biggest one, I guess people hated you, but I mean, like you were at Woodstock 99 and you had the biggest crowd and you like drove it to riot. Like you are one of the biggest bands in the world right now. It's like, it's so cool to just be like, here's what we are. And, and rappers do that. It blows my mind when I listen to a rap, a rap track and I, and the whole rap, the, all the flows are about how good they are at making flows. It's amazing. <laughs> they're not even talking about anything. All they're doing is like, here's how good I am. Here's how good I am. But like, I mean, I love tech nine and that's all he talks about. And it's incredible how many times he says his own artist name in the tracks. Tech nine starts the song tech nine ends the song tech nine. He says his name many, many times. I mean, the marketing there is just like, it's just like, here's who I am. One of my favorite shows I've been to lately was Tech Nine. We saw him here in Vancouver and he went on stage. This is how I look at it from business business side. Okay, his overhead is he had a back, a backdrop, one guy on stage as a security guard and that's it. He went on, he had no, he didn't have his own lighting guy. Maybe he had a sound guy, but it was probably the venue. Maybe he has a tour manager and that's it. I was like, dude, you're making so much money. And you're like, I am the fastest. <laughs> I am the best. I am the best. And what I loved about it is, I've been listening to Tech Nine for a long time. Uh, he's got lots of songs, plenty of them I don't care about. Lots of them I, I like. The coolest thing he he did, he played fifty songs in a space of an hour and a half by only doing a third of each one of the songs and then moving on. Wow, that's smart. He'll be like, "Here's the verse, chorus, next song, verse, chorus, next song," and then at the end he would be like, "Call out a song and I'll do it." And somebody would say, "Let's uh, do uh, Midwest Shoppers or whatever," and he'll 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 do the chorus. I'm like, "Okay, who else?" And so you got to hear every song that you like. I mean, that's crazy. I don't know how you can adapt that to other genres, but it's incredible. It's like a med. It's like a an hour and a half long medley, and if you don't like a song, it's done in a minute. It's a, it's cool. It doesn't matter. You don't even have time to go anywhere. It's like ah, oh, it's done in a second. I've seen Corn do something kind of like that. They would do medleys, and then also they would just play every single song back to back to back to back. I to back. love it. No talking. I love it. Just hit after hit after hit after hit. Then like a medley where they cover like four different songs in three minutes and then more songs back. It's just wall to wall. Yeah, they, there's a Megadeth live album on Spotify from the Rust in Peace era where it's song. All right, thanks so much. This next one's this song. Okay, thanks. This next one's it. no breaks. It's like, man, it's relentless, dude. It's so awesome. I love it. Yeah. I kind of feel like that's one of the like, when I see a band I work with, and they're finally putting some of those flourishes in their live show. I was like, okay, now you you guys are finally hitting like that final level now. I feel like it's one of the last things to develop in a yeah. band is like crafting the the like live experience where it's not just like, here's the set where there's like a little more to it and they're like adding small tweaks to the songs and, and building some crowd stuff in there. And when they finally reach that perfect like equilibrium where it doesn't sound too forced and it's not too rehearsed, but it still feels like fresh compared to the record. That's, that's like, uh, yeah, 
I'm I'm I get real stoked when I see my bands do because it, it usually happens like I'll start working with a band they're not quite there yet and then they grow and they get better and then when I see that final uh, thing ticking over I'm like oh cool this this band's got it going on yeah takes a while you have to play live a lot I know when it started to happen for us like it was one year that we did almost 200 shows in that year and it was during this span this 90 day span where we were on tour literally the entire time with like maybe four days off and it was somewhere in the middle that like shit just started to click it just did it and i feel like from that point forward we were just better live forever and i feel like same with songwriting you just have to do it a lot and then eventually um i mean obviously you have the talent for it but like it can only be developed through doing I think is you can't simulate it. You can't really develop a live show in rehearsal. Not enough. Like no matter how much you rehearse, say that like you rehearse for a year to do one show, you will not be as good as a band who toured only for two months straight that year. Yeah. You see that a lot in stand-up comedians. They'll go, you know, you go up on stage or whatever. And like I'll, you know, I talked a little bit about Kill Tony, that podcast and, and you'll, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll do an interview with somebody and they'll say, how long have you been doing stand-up? And they say six years. I go, okay. And they're not great. Like, how much do you do? It's like, I do one set a week, two sets a week. But then you see the guys that are crushing it and they're like, how many sets do you do a week? It's like, I do six or seven a night. Yep. That's where you get it. The Beatles, when they were in their cover band period, when they uh, were in Germany, they did five hours a night every night of the week for I don't know how long. It was like five sets a night of covers. And that's how they kind of like forged themselves. That's also how they developed that massive vocabulary to like pull from when writing all those songs. Yeah. It's crazy that they turned out to suck so bad. <laughs> and now they're successful were at all. Say that. I was waiting for it. I was waiting it's for it. Out, it's, it's crazy. They turned out to just turn, just I mean, shit with after all shit that, song. All after that shit training. Song. How could yeah. you suck so bad? <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. I love the Beatles. No, I don't know. I don't know. I, they're fine. Whatever. <laughs> no, but point being that you can't pick a band that's crushed it. Like really crushed. It. I don't mean a band that's got it like, kind of lucky for a short period of time and like a band that has really really crushed it their only way to get there is to play live a lot and write a lot of songs like write often really no way around that yeah we've hit a wall before when we were writing for our last album we did five days a week for three months it was not fun we hated it. By the second month, we're like, holy fuck, this is too much. And we would have days where nothing would get done. We'd have other days that a lot of stuff got done, whatever. So now we're doing three days a week and you know, we're doing about two, maybe two and a half hours or whatever. And then I'll go home and work on stuff. Everybody kind of work on stuff. And it kind of feels like it's not enough. It's kind of like, man, we gotta, I, think, I don't want to go back to five days a week, but there's some stuff that we dug out in those really dark times where we're like, I got to go back to the jam spot again tomorrow. Like this is a full job. It's like, yeah, some some good stuff came from that as much as I hated it. I don't want to go back to doing that. Just build in that suffering. Yeah, I don't want to do it. Sounds like you have to. Don't make me Just do it. Make it really uncut. Like make it really hot or really cold in there. Oh, I mean, you've been there before. Everyone has to like wear uncomfortable socks, you know, just like now that you guys are so successful, you just got to find ways to like build in that that suffering to keep the music true you've been there when i went to berkeley i got it in my head that like you know when military people train or 
police train, they try to give them an environment that will spike their adrenaline in training because that's what they're going to experience out in the field. They're going to have to do these uh, these skills that require fine motor skills, basically perform these actions that require precision, all kinds of memorization, like all, very similar to music. So I figured, why don't I try to make rehearsal t- terrible? So <laughs> got strobe lights and space heaters, and I'm not sure that it helped. No. If <laughs> <laughs> we broke up. <laughs> <laughs> the jam space that we were at is the same one we've been at for about 10 years, and it is a disgusting hellhole. It is. It smells like... Pretty dingy. Oh, my God. It's so dingy. But the state of jam spaces in Vancouver is just... There's nothing else. I'm glad we have that one place because I don't know where else we would jam. I have no other possibilities. And we have that place to ourselves. So we, you know, we pay, I don't even, I think we pay, I don't know. It's under a grand or something like that a month. But it's worth it to have 24-hour access to a room where we can go play music whenever we want. But I don't want to go there. I'm going to go there in just over an hour. And I... I'm not looking forward to being in the room. Condolences. I feel so bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that being said, that being said, I've also, I've worked rebar construction before. I've worked commercial renovation. I've worked in a bunch of different kitchens. This is a million times better than any of that. It's just two hours a day, three days a week. You got to go to work at a gross place. <laughs> I know it's tough. It is tough. I'm sorry, Dean. Well, I think it's a good place to end the podcast because Dean's well, about to yeah, break down into tears. I and look, like, <laughs> I look like a fucking, like a total like pussy all of a sudden. I, I mean, it's just like, I think you need to be alone Dean for this Dean has moment. to mentally prepare himself for his two yeah. hour long practice, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Give him some space. No, yeah. <laughs> Positive vibes. Whatever like personal strength ritual you need to go through to yeah. be ready for the uh, ordeal you're about to endure. Right, like, yeah. Just know that we're with you. Oh, okay. We're with you, man. Thinking of you. Not actually. No, not actually. No. Fuck. That's all you. (laughs) All right. Well, whatever. Well, no, for real though, thanks to both of you for coming on. It's been a pleasure as always. Yeah. We should do a live uh, in-person one sometime. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be awesome. Yeah, that would be cool. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at Audio at URM Academy, and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at urm.academy. And use the subject line, answer me, al. All right, then. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.